Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. With its history of seaside resorts, boardwalks, and amusement parks, Coney Island is one of Brooklyn's most iconic places. But Coney Island has a hidden but no less essential history as a flourishing center of queer community, leisure, work, and experimentation. On this episode, we unpack the queer history of Coney Island. Coney Island suddenly provides this opportunity for straight people to go on dates and to have these activities where they can go together. And so it becomes really popular with everyone. It's where you go if you're a young, hip kid in 1897, you know, and you want to see what's exciting and you want to have fun. And that opens up space for queer people by filling it with people who are full of desire and excitement and want to just go out and do things. That kind of queerness that is not specifically lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender is what the spirit of Coney Island is. And so I look at this photo and I can see that not only is Coney Island this vibrant place where there is all this life happening again, but it has that kind of queer edge to it. One woman in Coney Island. I can't right now call her name. But she is the beginning of me being a lesbian. I was no more than about 17, 18 years old. And she, I fell in love with her. I didn't know it was love, but I did. Well, now she's number one, the number two. It took a long time for me to get over losing her. For today's entire episode, we're joined by author and curator Hugh Ryan. Hugh is the author of a new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, as well as a current BHS exhibition, On the Queer Waterfront, which is open through August 4th. Hugh was one of our earliest guests on episode three of Flatbush in Maine, and we're so excited to have him back again to reveal more of Brooklyn's untold queer histories. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you guys for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. So am I, because we had so much fun last time. We did. And I know we're going to dig into some more amazing stories in this episode. Yeah, Coney Island, one of the best parts of Brooklyn. Totally. And of course, this is just one part of your new book. And I think first, we just want to celebrate. Congratulations on the book being out. And tell us a little bit about When Brooklyn Was Queer. Sure. It's a really exciting time, I have to admit. Thank you guys for having me back again to talk about it. The book covers, I say, roughly 111 years of Brooklyn's queer history, from 1855, when Walt Whitman published Leaves of Grass, all the way up to 1966, when the Brooklyn Navy Yard closed down. It's kind of the lifespan of the Brooklyn working waterfront, and that's what enabled queer life, the ability to have jobs here in Brooklyn. And that's the arc of the book. So why do an exhibition along with the book? You know, 
When I started doing this research, I came from a place of knowing almost nothing about Brooklyn's queer history and about Brooklyn's history in general. And I realized there weren't very many places where I knew to go to find that history. And so I wanted to share what I found with as many people as possible. And so the book was one way to do that. But there are a lot of people for whom that book won't speak to them or they may never have time to read it. Or for one reason or another, it's just not the right way to get this information to them. So the reason in general I work as both a writer and curator is because I care so much about this history. I want to present it in as many ways as possible. Well, and I think the stories you tell are so visual, too. And they're really tied into the history of art, you know. And I think, you know, just looking through the exhibition, so much of that story is told through the eye. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I said, it's about economics. It's about jobs you can have. But one of those groups of jobs that I found so many queer people having on the waterfront were artists. Mm -hmm. Everything from painters to writers to set designers. And those are really visual mediums. And so they're a great way to actually get us to really feel the history of Brooklyn. And I feel like we got to know a lot of those people the last time that you were on a few years ago. So great to see these projects coming to fulfillment now. And we talked a lot about Brooklyn Heights, Dumbo, the working waterfront. But today we want to travel several miles south to kind of a different location on Coney Island. So how does looking at Coney Island kind of change or make more complex the stories you're telling? Well, in one big way, Coney Island is very different from a lot of the rest of Brooklyn historically, which is that everyone went there, right? You might never find a reason to go to Red Hook, but you found a reason to go to Coney Island. In fact, at certain points in the history I look at, as many as a third of the city's population was at Coney Island at the same time. Millions, over a million people. And that's incredible, right? That provides for all kinds of mixing of people and all kinds of experiences. And particularly because Coney Island starts off at the end of the Victorian era as this entertainment district and a place where people go to experience fun and what's new and exciting and maybe also a little tawdry and sensual. And that sort of libidinous mix is the history of Coney Island. And that's different from, honestly, almost any place in America. So you've kind of, I think, helped us understand a little bit about what I'm going to ask. But if you can elaborate more, why was a thriving queer culture able to flourish in Coney Island? There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One of the most surprising ones that I would start off with is heterosexuality. And that sounds like kind of a funny answer. But when Coney Island really becomes a big destination for all New York City residents, not just sort of wealthy residents who can afford to get there. So we're talking the late 1800s, travels become a little bit easier in Brooklyn, and everyone can get down there, and you start to get these amusement parks opening up. And that's important because this is the end of the Victorian era, and this idea of separate spheres where, you know, men are outside and they're active and they have jobs, and women are passive and in the home, and they they don't spend a lot of time together. Coney Island suddenly provides this opportunity for straight people to go on dates and to have these activities where they can go together. And so it becomes really popular with everyone. It's where you go if you're a young, hip kid in 1897, you know, and you want to see what's exciting and you want to have fun. And that opens up space for queer people by filling it with people who are full of desire and excitement and want to just go out and do things. Not only does that provide sort of coverage for queer people who are going there themselves, but it also means these are people who want to experience things. They want to experience things that are new and exciting. And that often came down to the entertainments that were there. 
Bearded ladies, they were called half and halves, which are half man, half woman. These were kinds of entertainments that played with gender to begin with. So this is another reason Coney Island is really important in queer history. You already had, going back to the mid-1800s, these queer performers. Now, they may not have thought of themselves in queer in any way that we would think of it, but they did provide an atmosphere that was ambiguous, where there was already this playfulness or this beyond strictured nature uh, and into the early 1900s, you get drag performers there, and you get all kinds of other things that provide jobs for queer people. So that's another thread that makes Coney Island sort of an important place in queer history. And the third one, oddly enough, is public bathing establishments. Those really get established in the city in the, the mid to late 1800s. First, you've got private ones that are really high-end and ritzy. Then you get public bathing establishments that are supposed to improve the lives of the poor. And Coney Island in the 1920s gets a lot of um, sort of a mixed class of bathing establishment. It's private. So you have a lot of people who are coming to go to one specific club because that's where they go. That's where the people in their neighborhood go. But they're also not expensive. So you can get a lot of people hanging out there, a lot of men-only spaces, a lot of women-only spaces. And very quickly, those start to appeal to queer people. So those are three of the big threads that I think tell us why Coney Island is so important in queer history. When people have written about Coney Island, they, of course, talk about the amusements, they talk about the entertainers, they talk about these features. How is your rethreading of these features in this narrative, how is that changing the way we understand a place like Coney Island? I think it changes it in a number of ways. And one of the most important ones is that it gives us a fuller idea of the lives of those performers. I think oftentimes, particularly, say, women who performed in burlesque, we assume their heterosexuality because their whole presentation is, you know, a femme woman to entertain men. But in looking at my history, I actually found many queer women who worked as burlesque beauties or sideshow dancers. Now, Oddly enough, I also found many heterosexual women who were working as bearded ladies and half and halves. So there are people who are playing with gender who identify as straight. There are people who are performing as straight who identify as queer. And it adds this level of complexity that I think we can miss out on really easily. Hugh, I guess my question is a little bit about your research process. How did you find these stories? It's a really organic process, to be honest, because as I said, I started from a place of real ignorance. What I was doing at first was just jotting anything down. If someone said anything about queer Brooklyn or even suggested that maybe this book had some bit of history in it, I would write that down and then I would go look at it. And then I would take, you know, maybe it would mention a couple of names of people. And I would take those names and I would start off by Googling them. And then I would run them through every database I had access to. And then I would look and see if any of them were mentioned in books that I knew already mentioned other parts of Brooklyn's queer history. And then I would get more information. Then I would go back to those archives. And so I was sort of ping-ponging back and forth between different kinds of sources all the time. And a lot of times, things would have to sit with me for years before I would be able to make a connection. My favorite story about that relating to Coney Island is actually this woman who was a performer there named Madame Tirza. And she had this amazing routine. She built a 1,200-pound wine fountain. She was a licensed plumber. And she would perform <laughs> inside Wait, it. I love that. <laughs> Well, right. So this is 1940, basically. It's the war. And she can't get a plumber to do the job for her. She hires an architect. He does a terrible job. She hates it. She says to him, it's too heavy to move. And she tore it apart herself and rebuilt it and became a plumber so that she could fix it while she was on the road. I love it. She's an incredible woman, right? And so she's got this routine. It's really amazing, but didn't really have any queer history that I knew of. Then, one day, I was looking at an oral history at the Coney Island History Project, and it was one of her dancers. And she said that Madame Tirza was a 
she, he, he, she, which at first I thought was a really offensive term for a trans person, but what she actually meant was she was bisexual and she dated both men and women. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is fascinating, you know? And, and then I was thinking about it and I was like, wait, something about this is familiar. I've come across this story somewhere, but I, I couldn't quite figure out where. And I was going through all of my old sources, and I was looking for Terza, and nothing came up. And then I looked for Wine Bath, and I found that I had gotten this transcription of an oral history done in the mid-'80s with a drag king in San Francisco. And she says in it that her girlfriend was a bathing beauty who worked down at Coney Island in the show of a woman named Ginza where she bathed in wine. And I realized this was the same show. She didn't get the name quite right, so I wasn't able to make the connection at first. But when I sat and listened to that oral history, the descriptions were so similar that I was eventually able, by searching wine bath, to make this connection and realize that Madame Tirza was not only queer, she was employing other queer women, and that I don't think that was a coincidence. Those are the like amazing moments amazing. when you're doing archival research and these things just kind of unlock for you. I love these stories of discovery. I'm struck by how important oral histories are to your process. Oh, my um, gosh. And yes. in, in a way that I think is really interesting that um, things like searching transcripts uh, yes. cannot get you the answer, right. right? It's like you needed to listen to that and have that context to actually be able to put those two things together. And that's something that we're often talking about, how the oral history, the actual process of listening to an oral history is just as important as reading a transcript. So mm-hmm. that's very exciting yes, to hear. Yes, that the transcript is just like a point of entry, but the real final product of an oral history interview is the actual audio recording. Absolutely. Because, I mean, just think about it right now. Like if I were to say to you, that's such a smart question. Sounds one way when I say it that way. But if I said, yeah, that's such a smart question. You know what I mean is different. And on a transcript, you don't get that. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting that you say that because I think it's that exact kind of subtlety that embodies the queer approach to history, right? That there is enormous information embedded in the two ways that you just said that, that a kind of straight reading, if you will, might miss. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like we have been conditioned to assume, like make, I guess, heteronormative assumptions in the way that we read the past. And so yes. uh, if you are not consciously trying to read against that, you're going to miss all of these nuances. You know, you're going to miss these stories that are just bubbling up from under the surface. Absolutely. And, you know, with queer history in particular, and particularly like with Coney Island, you get a lot of people who are recording this history because they're lawmakers who think that what they're seeing is terrible, or they're moralizing journalists or preachers or just moralizing citizens who, again, have this really negative take on what's happening here at Coney Island. And so you really have to read against what they're saying to open up possibilities. You know, not to say that you know necessarily what exactly the answer is, but to situate them in a way that contextualizes why they're saying what they're saying, Mm. why they think what they think. Well, I think that also, I mean, in a lot of ways that applies for people who study race and racism, too, is that the the structures of bigotry actually capture information that then can be yeah. mined oh, yeah. um, for the historian. Yes, yeah, so you have to do a kind of meta, like you have to use a source for its content, but also understand a kind of tonal reading of the source of like what its intent is, mm-hmm. right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really, it's like a dual reading of a source. Yeah, there's this uh, sex worker who takes her name from a Coney Island ride, Loop the Loop. It's the first roller coaster, or one of the first roller coasters to turn its riders completely upside down. And she's a young 
white trans woman in Brooklyn. She wouldn't have used the word trans. This was like 1906. But she very much had an understanding of her identity that's close to what we have today. And we only know about her because this doctor named R.W. Schufeld interviewed her repeatedly over an 11-year period. And he was actually really a white supremacist. His interest was in eugenics. And he saw queer people as one threat to the white race. They're this sort of etiolated end point where the nerves have gotten the best of us and we produce these psychopaths and these terrible things, you know. And then he saw black people as a threat from the outside. And they were coming in to, you know, interbreed with whites and ruin the white race that way. So his understanding and his studying of both race and sexuality comes down to white supremacy. And with Loop, I found it particularly interesting because he goes in and he makes all of these assumptions about her. I mean, it's, it's, it's really negative the way he talks about her. And yet she comes across so well in this article. She's clearly smart and funny and has a boyfriend and has been working as a streetwalker in Brooklyn in full drag for 11 years without being arrested. You know, she's had some bad experiences, but she has this really full and incredible life. And at one point in the interviews, he makes fun of her, sort of, and says, like, she's so dumb, she thought she was pregnant once, but, you know, that's impossible. She couldn't be. And I was like, well, why is she saying that, right? Okay, maybe maybe she did think she was pregnant at some point. Sure. I'll take that as an option. But what if she was playing a joke on this idiot doctor who knows so little about trans people that he's going to believe that? Or what if, like many trans people today, she was telling him what she thought he needed to hear to accept her as a woman, right? There are all of these arguments, and, and I don't know what the answer is, but it felt important to me to highlight the possibilities because we have no recording of Loop from her own perspective. We only get it from his. So in addition to Loop and Madame Tarsa, what are some of the other historical figures that really stood out to you as you did this work? There are a number. I mean, one who I loved is this man, Thomas Painter, who took pictures of all these uh, what he called strength and health boys or, or models for physique magazines at Coney Island in the 1950s. But perhaps my favorite person in the entire book uh, really comes in at Coney Island, and that's Mabel Hampton. And she was a black lesbian dancer who got a job uh, when she was about 17 at Coney Island in 1920. And it was there that she first discovered what it meant to be a lesbian. And she'd even had sex with women before this. But the concept of lesbianism is what she learned there, as well as meeting all of these other women. And we're actually really blessed because she cultivated a circle of queer women her entire life from the 1920s all the way up through the 1980s. And as part of that, she helped found the Lesbian History Archives. And the other two founders, Joan Nessel and Deb Edel, did these incredible oral histories with her over the course of many years. And because of that, I get to actually listen to her talk about these stories. And I feel like I, I almost know Mabel in a way that I don't feel with anyone else in this book. It's such an interesting counterpoint to Loop the Loop, right? It's like all you you can do is infer these things right. about her experiences, but here is the kind of actual answer to that to get them from her own words and her own mouth. And happily, we will get to listen to it because yes. in segment three, we're going to listen to some clips of Mabel Hampton. So this sort of flowering age of queer identity and life in Coney Island comes to an end. In the mid-century, you would say, right? Yeah, yeah, post-World War II. I mean, that's when a lot of things change in queer history in general and in Brooklyn history in general. You get an economic downturn in the city that particularly hits uh, Brooklyn because of Robert Moses, right? He builds all of these highways to let suburbanites get into Manhattan. And in doing so, he sort of cuts off the entire working waterfront from the rest of Brooklyn. He also attacks Coney Island head on, basically. He uses his ability at the Parks Department to buy up land to keep 
keep businesses empty along the boardwalk so that Coney Island slips into disrepair and eventually falls apart. He attacks women like Madame Tirza, whose performances he thinks are too sexual, uh, tickets them all the time, shuts them down, won't give them licenses, eventually drives them out. And finally, by, I would say, around 1953-54, all of the queer narrators who in the 30s and 40s talk about going to Coney Island suddenly say, no, you wouldn't go there anymore. It was not safe for us. Uh, There's a a lesbian social history of New York City, very thinly veiled, called We Who Walk Alone. And then there's a sequel called We Too Must Love. And in one of them, she has a woman saying, oh, no, 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 you would not go there as a lesbian. You just wouldn't feel safe. You know, and that was not the case when Mabel was there in the 20s. And I interviewed a couple of Stonewall veterans, and they said to me, you know, we would go everywhere in, you know, scare makeup, a little bit of drag, you know, just to freak out the straights. And you'd go in a big group, you'd go to the mall, you'd go to Macy's, you'd go to the museum, but you would never go to Coney Island. It was not safe. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. Hugh and Zaheer, let's just pick up where we left off in the last segment, because I think we should talk a little bit more about this decline of Coney Island and then its eventual resurgence at the end of the 20th century. But I also, since this is our Into the Archives segment, want to think a little bit about what it means to offer a queer analysis of a set of documents that don't necessarily present as having queer history at the outset. And so, I've brought in some images from our archives to do just that. And, you know, I think our listeners are really in for a treat because we're actually kind of like having a masterclass on how to recover these stories and surface stories that have, you know, been buried through these documents. And I think one of the places that we start when you talked in the first uh, segment about ping-ponging through different sources, I think most researchers start with like the broad context. Like what is the landscape that we're dealing with? You know, where are we? When are we? And what's going on so that we can begin kind of digging through this to find the stories? Yeah. And so if we pick up where you left off, Hugh, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on in Coney Island in the 1950s and the 1960s. And so much of it, actually, I think maybe people don't realize, has to do with a lot of the issues of gentrification that we're facing in Brooklyn today. Most notably, the kind of land grab that Robert Moses facilitated. And then who's the grabber? <laughs> but um, our president's father, um, Fred Trump, who bought up an enormous amount of land um, in Coney Island at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a sad history in a way. You know, it's one of the sections of the book that was hardest for me to write and to sort of realize, to watch that decline. You get post-war, well, during the war, you have this tremendous attraction at Coney Island. People are still going there. All the war workers say, oh, that's where we go. We get a day off. We run to Coney Island. And it's this incredible spot still. And then 1945, the war ends. And basically overnight, everything at Coney Island falls apart. And a lot of it is because of Robert Moses. Even before the war, he had been eating away at Coney Island. He had forced the city not to open a new school there for residents because he wanted the land. He bought up all this land on the boardwalk. He forced the 
New York City Aquarium to move there in this terrible process where he pulled down the aquarium basically overnight with no plans to make a new one. So for something like 12 years, there was a giant empty lot on the boardwalk. Uh, and when it finally did open, he built a special ramp so that people wouldn't go near the boardwalk or spend money at the amusements that he thought were so tawdry and would go only to his new aquarium, right? And so he does all of this stuff to sort of tear away at Coney Island because he wants people to go to the other beaches he's building that are clean white sand with no amusements and no poor people. And available by car. And so this is also part of his essentially subsidization of the highway system and of really prompting moves uh, like what we often call white flight, the suburbization of the population. I mean, I think this is so such an interesting infrastructure question. Like there was and continues to not be really a lot of places to park at Coney Island, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas if you go to like Jones Beach, you know, it's all parking parking (laughs) out there, you know, and you can start to see see how this ties into like a master vision as laid out by Moses. Mm -hmm. And Moses is so tricky, right? Like he always does everything with six purposes. So not only is he eating away at Coney Island to force people to go to these car accessible beaches and to make the city spend less money on Coney Island in general, but he has this idea because he's also in charge of slum clearance and public housing. And so what he wants to do is build as much dense public housing away from the quote unquote important parts of the city, you know, Manhattan, and where poor people already are. This is his idea. He'll erase what was there before, and then he'll build these like high rises to warehouse the poor. And essentially, we start to see the tearing down of major parts yeah. of Coney Island. Um, big parts of Steeplechase Park come down in the 1960s. And so there's a inf- like there's sort of an infrastructural dismantling of the space that so many people for so many generations had gone to for leisure. Mm-hmm. And I think this brings us nicely to the first image that we are looking at, which is a really beautiful photograph taken by a New York photographer named Anders Goldfarb um, in 1984 of, how do you pronounce it, Stotches? I've been saying Stouches, but you yeah. know, I never know how to pronounce yeah. anything right. <laughs> the danger of being an archival historian. So we'll split the baby, I guess. Stouches, Stouches. And um, so tell us what we're looking at. So Stouches Bath, or Stouches Bath, was once one of the biggest, fanciest baths at Coney Island. Uh, it opened, I think, in the late 1909, maybe 1908, somewhere around there, and really hits its heyday in 1920s, which is when most of the bathhouses hit their heyday at Coney Island. There probably would have been between 30 and 40 open at any one time. And most of them had connections to a particular ethnic group somewhere else in the city. Not all of them, but a lot of them were really places for you to go with your friends. And so a couple of them end up being baths that are really inhabited a lot by queer men. The, the two big ones that I've found are Stouches and the Washington Baths. And this photo of Stouches, it looks desolate. You know, it looks like a place you would never go for fun. Uh, It looks like a warehouse you set on fire. But back in the day, Stouches was this incredibly exciting, vivacious place. Not only were there all these amusements in the building, you know, steam rooms, saunas, massages, restaurants, uh, exercise equipment, nude bathing on the roof. Uh, There was also, it was right on the boardwalk, right on the beach. And so it had its own set of steps that led down onto the beach. And underneath the boardwalk, you know that song, Under the Boardwalk? 
Yeah. When I was a kid, I had no idea what that was really referencing. I thought under the boardwalk just meant these sort of empty spots where you could kind of hide. But no, it used to be that under the boardwalk at Coney Island were all these nameless little joints that sold beer and food and had jukeboxes and people would hang out in them in little groups. So you would get a queer group underneath Stouches. Uh, in fact, in the 1950s, from about 1950 to 1953, that area right underneath Stouches becomes the area for a group of queer Puerto Rican men who hang out there for about three years and then disappear entirely from the history. So all of this is going on in Stouches. And we know that it was queer going back at least to the 1920s, because in 1929, the magazine Variety hosts an all-male beauty pageant at Stouches Baths. And they think they're going to have this incredible event. They invite all of these stars, a Broadway star is one of the judges, Rudy Valley is supposed to be one of the judges. And they have something like 40 men participating in this beauty pageant. And when they start it, they realize right away something is wrong. The audience is all men. And they didn't think that was going to happen, right? And so they're like, oh, 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 something's up. And then the men start coming up and they're wearing, one guy is in full drag, a number of them are in makeup, they're prancing, they're lisping. So while this is the only piece of evidence I have to sort of pinpoint a queer community in Stouch's Bath in the 1920s, right away this tells me a lot. 40 men who show up in public, who are not afraid to be in drag, who have an audience that's expecting them to be there, right? This is a queer network. There are people here talking to each other. This doesn't happen by accident. And the women in the audience, the Variety article actually freaks out about this a lot. The women who are from Coney Island don't care. They think it's fun. They think it's funny. They vote for some of the men in drag to win the contest. And the sort of overseers who are coming in from Manhattan are like, <gasps> what is going on? Like they freak out. One of them starts crying and yells that it's about oh the sanctity gosh. of the family. Oh my gosh. And it's incredible. And, and what I think is really funny also is this is one of those places where you get one of those um, weird linguistic historical moments. Uh, they call the men floozies. Huh. Right? Because that was a term that you would use for a brazen woman who might appear sexually forward in a place like a bar in the late 1800s. And those women were often associated or kind of seen in working class communities as the same space that was inhabited by what we might call trans women. They would have been called inverts in the late 1800s, right? But so words for those kind of women were often extended to men. In fact, the word faggot used to refer to female uh, to women in general in England as a, a negative. A faggot was a bundle of sticks. It was a burden, a thing that you had to carry. And so women would be called the same thing. And eventually that word migrates to gay men. Oh. Same thing happened with floozies, but it was so brief a time that we've kind of forgotten that now. Wow, that's fascinating. Wow. So with that history in mind, what story do you see emerging out of this photograph when you look at it? So when I look at this photo and the level of desolation that's been experienced here, you can see that we've come a really far away from 1929, a really far away from 1939, even a really far away from 1949. What happens is in the 50s, like we said, Robert Moses is kind of coming after Coney Island and it forces all of these communities away that were going there. So the, the queer Puerto Rican men who gathered underneath the baths here at Stouches, they disappear by 54. Uh, gay men in general kind of disappear around the same time. Lesbians start saying, no, you can't go there. And everyone really stops going. Coney Island hits this incredible decline. And it's the stagflation that the city is experiencing in general, right, in this time, hits Coney Island doubly hard uh, because so many people are eating away at it and because now we're moving NYCHA housing there, so we're tearing down stuff for that. There's just all of this stuff getting torn down. And this is happening a lot 
of times before landmarking was really a thing in the city, and particularly in Coney Island. And so by like the mid-60s, you get Fred Trump buying what's left of Steeplechase Park. And as the community is desperately trying to landmark the space, he tears it down and throws a party to show that he is tearing it down before it can be landmarked, complete with strippers. I mean, it's this gauche and disgusting sort of middle finger to Coney Island, right? And that's what I see when I look at this. This is the the residue, the what's left by the mid-80s where we've really hit maybe like the lowest point that Coney Island is going to hit. Uh, this burns down, probably a case of arson in 83 to get the money. Uh, and by that point, people say it wasn't a gay bath anymore. You know, maybe there was some CD gay sex happening there because it was the last of the bathhouses but it was a dangerous place, a place where you might get robbed when you went there. You know, it wasn't the community that had once been there. It's interesting what happens in the 1980s, because if that is kind of the nadir of the story that you tell in 1983, something else is happening in Coney Island, which is a kind of a new appreciation and a new sense of community building um, uh, related to the history uh, of Coney Island. And 83 comes to my mind because that's when you have the first mermaid parade um, down the boardwalk at Coney Island. I have to tell you guys, I've never been to the mermaid parade. I have not either. Oh my god! Uh, you know, it's um. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we have an on-site <laughs> yeah, we, uh, live podcast yeah. to do there in June or we something. Field trip. We should. We should. <laughs> but Hugh, you have right? Yeah, yeah. I actually was in a band called the Rude Mechanical Orchestra. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing. I'm tone deaf. Um, but I was a flag bearer, and so <laughs> we would perform there every couple of years. Oh, really that's fun. Awesome. That's great. So, so for people who who don't know what the Mermaid Parade is. What is the Mermaid Parade? I would put it as if Coney Island had like Coney Island Sideshow Pride, that's what it is. Love that. It's, it's, you know, Mardi Gras on the Atlantic Ocean. It's this incredible space where people dress up, wear costumes, perform. Groups come together to make themed costumes or to have, you know, chariots that are decorated like King Neptune. I believe there's a, a king and a queen, there's right? King Neptune and a queen mermaid, which is, of course, named after the two most famously named streets in Coney Island, Neptune Avenue mm. and Mermaid Avenue. And there's like a definitely a bacchanalia to it wouldn't you say mm-hmm. i mean there's like mm-hmm. it's like sort of famous for allowing public nudity um mm-hmm. people dress very the mermaid costumes are very sexy mm-hmm. you know and, a lot of drinking yes. a lot of partying i, I think in a, in a way you know you talk about this resurgence this captures what is resurging, right? This idea of Coney Island as a space sort of a little bit beyond the law, perhaps, mm-hmm. a little bit beyond our ideas of sexuality yeah. in general and our appropriateness. And that's, I think, some of the magic of Coney Island. It's not about a particular resort or ride or anything like that. It's about a feeling and an emotional place that it takes you to as someone who comes there. I have to tell you guys, I had a very interesting experience researching this because um, in my my sort of mind, I have inherently associated the Mermaid Parade with queer celebrations. Mm. And as I began to do the like sort of on text research for it, I was able to find very little actually mm-hmm. acknowledging that. And to me, it really it really kind of solidified what is lost by a reliance on textual sources, right? Like mm-hmm. I, in my mind, like, you know, think about amazing photographs that I've seen and amazing mm-hmm. stories that I've mm-hmm. heard about queer experiences at the Mermaid Parade and was able to kind of 
find very little evidence to be like, and in this, you know, doc- document of the formation of the Mermaid Parade, right. it claims, right. some, you know, mm-hmm. allegiance with this topic. Right. And that and that, that was so striking to me, in, given the kind of the methodological uh, queering of the stories that we're talking about mm-hmm. today. I think particularly when you're dealing with spaces that exist outside of whatever the current sort of schema of discussing that thing is, uh, there's not a lot of textual evidence, you know. So that's also true historically in queer history. When you go back far enough that our ideas of homosexuality sexuality and heterosexuality just don't make any sense, it's really hard to find textual evidence for them. And I think Coney Island did a little bit of that way because it's trying to be beyond all of this uh-huh. and to encompass all of this. And so you don't find those words as easily. You don't find those textual references. So do you ever, um, I guess, wonder or worry about overreading? Like, how do you proceed without this sense of like, maybe I'm reading too much that's not there? How do you strike that balance? Um, foolishly and rashly. Uh, (laughs) No, I think that I'm constantly trying to look at all the sources and sort of say to myself, well, what is there? What isn't there? Uh, To recognize that finding any amount of queer evidence sort of suggests a lot more because it is so hard to find, because it is so hidden. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I try to look at the context. So, you know, you mentioned 1983 as being a, a moment of the start of resurgence with the Mermaid Parade at Coney Island. And that rings a lot of bells that are true for me because... When I called this book When Brooklyn Was Queer, I was following a particular sort of 111-year track, the waterfront queerness, a time period where you would have come to parts of Brooklyn, particularly Coney Island, to have a queer experience. You would think, I'm going to go there for that queer experience. And that starts to die off right after the war. But post-Stonewall, that starts to resurge in the city again. So it's, it's a different resurgence, but it is connected. I mean, I think Brooklyn now is queerer in ways that it was never before, mm-hmm. queerer than it has ever been, a more diverse queerness, a more fabulous queerness, and a more powerful queerness. And that really starts, I would say, post-Stonewall, particularly in the 80s. Yes, now the queer community is dealing with AIDS. There are all these other issues. But you start to get these moments. Uh, Park Slope will become Dyke Slope by the 90s, right? You get the Starlight Lounge opening in Crown Heights, which becomes a really important social spot for queer people of color. You get all of these other things that are starting to happen. Eventually, the Lesbian Herstory Archives will move to Brooklyn in the mid-90s. Transy House, which was shelter for trans people, opens up in the mid-90s. So I see these other resurgences happening in Brooklyn and that says to me, yeah, it makes sense. The Mermaid Parade would sort of mark in 1983 mm-hmm. this resurgence at Coney Island. So I think that brings us back to the last picture that we're going to look at today, a picture that was taken in 2005 by a fantastic Brooklyn photographer who we've spoken about before named Lucille Fornaceri Gold. This is an image of, let's see, three men and two women um, dressed kind of fabulously um, on what appears to be a very hot day (laughs) along the Coney Island boardwalk um, during the Mermaid Parade. So, Hugh, I think, what and tell us what you see when when we show this really lovely and I think somewhat stylized image. Well, what I love about this image when I look at it is that it so perfectly captures a resurgence, not just of Coney Island. I mean, there's so many people on the beach. It's clearly a party you want to be at. You know, these people look like they're having a good time and have been having a good time all day. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just that. You look at it and you say, you know, those two guys, there's one guy with his arm around the other and, and one's shirtless and has these shiny pants on. 
they might be lovers, you know, or, or they might just be men engaging in sort of homosocial activity while out cruising for women. Or it might just be that they're drunk and they don't even remember what they're doing, you know. And you have these two women who are wearing a mix of sort of gendered signifiers, right? You've got a bikini top with a cowboy hat and denim shorts and all these tattoos. And the other woman, I think, is topless with a skirt. Uh, again, these m- might be a lesbian couple. They might be friends. And that's very true to the history of Coney Island, that it was a place where sort of all of this stuff was happening and it was all possible, right? And it would, could read a lot of things into it. And I think that kind of multivalent reading, that kind of queerness that is not specifically lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender is what the spirit of Coney Island is. And so I look at this photo and I can see that not only is Coney Island this vibrant place where there is all this life happening again, but it has that kind of queer edge to it. In this Voices of Brooklyn segment, we actually are borrowing an oral history from the Lesbian History Archives, who we also featured in episode three of Flatbush in Maine. And we're very grateful for them to let us use this oral history, actually excerpts from two different interviews with Mabel Hampton, who we've talked about throughout this podcast. So I think Hugh has the best grasp on who Mabel Hampton was and why her story is so important for us to listen to. Yeah, Mabel Hampton was a black lesbian dancer who eventually became a domestic worker in New York City. She was a lesbian organizer. She was the Grand Marshal of Pride in 1984. She's an incredibly important figure who's not very well remembered today, and particularly for the way that she, throughout her life, created these circles of queer women. And that started for her, in a lot of ways, at Coney Island. And what I love about this tape, you know, we talked about the importance of oral histories earlier, is how much of the flavor of her and her life you can get just from listening to her. She's an early part of the Great Migration coming up from the South. You can hear it in her voice. You can hear her age. You can hear her excitement. You can even hear the moments where she's shy remembering parts of this. So we will provide links to the full interviews that are hosted by the Lesbian History Archives. These excerpts are taken from two separate interviews. And this recording was done in 1981 in an analog format. And we've done our best to clean up the audio. But this is part of the challenge of preserving sound over a long period of time. Nonetheless, the content is so special. We hope that you get a chance to enjoy what you listen to. One woman in Coney Island. I can't right now call her name, but she is the beginning of me being a lesbian. I was no more than about seven to 18 years old. And she, I fell in love with her. I didn't know it was love, but I did. Well, now, she's number one, the number two. It took a long time for me to get over losing her. So I am sitting there, and all of a sudden I looked up at this woman. I don't know what it was about her, but uh, I began to feel funny. So I dropped my eyes. I made it smooth. Because I had girlfriends and all, but we never did things together. So when I looked up again, she was looking at me. So that confused me. So uh, I 
dropped my eyes and didn't look anymore. And she went to get up. I raised them and looked at her. And the fury shot through me like electricity. I wasn't accustomed to that, see. Although I, I stopped about many things when I was 11 years old. Else, I don't think it would have happened. So, uh, the girlfriend said, Nate, when that Miss Minor's daughter knows it, she said, What's now? She said, Nothing. So, she kept watching me. Miss Minor kept watching me. There's other women around now, but the elder they watched me so much. Yeah. So, this woman gets up and goes up. Now, I don't see her no more until. The next morning, we had to have breakfast together there. Well, we were the chorus. We had to eat all together. So this, uh, this woman was there. So after they said grace, uh, I tried to keep my eyes open. It looked like she was magnet. She just kept drawing me, you see. But she would watch me. I... Uh, I felt funny, even when I was looking at her. So, uh, next, uh, after the breakfast was over, she went out and I, I followed her on out. Maybe was in back of me and I'm going after this woman. So, so she said, I lost her. And she came later. Left me, wasn't time to rehearse or anything. So all of a sudden, I began to have that feeling again. So I said, Now that's funny. I never felt like this before. So um, I knew, I knew within me, somebody was watching me, but I couldn't tell who it was. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that woman is somewhere around. Because every time I seen her, I'd, be, I'd, get, I'd get a fail from the see. Especially she was looking at me. So uh, she asked me, she said, how she came over. I was so speechless, I couldn't talk. I was just stupid. Absolutely stupid. So she says, how are you? Sometimes aren't I like that? She says, uh, you, you, after rehearsal, you want to come and, and, and sit with me and we'll talk. I said, yes. Yeah. I was very shy. I always have been shy for women concerning me. So, when I met her again, she was in the place by herself. So she says, now, um, <laughs> why do you all, oh, she says, now ask me truly. When I look at you, it thrills you, don't it? Yes, I think so. And I just wish it was not my head. She said, that's all right. You can have that. She said, but uh, I'll have to take the show away because I don't want to ruin your life. I said, no, I'm ruining my life. I'm dancing. She said, that ain't what I mean. She said, and then that's the time I learned the word, a lesbian. 
It's not her. It's, she said to me, so you know, I'm a lesbian, I'm married. And I wouldn't want to ruin your life. I said to myself, nice, but if that's what it is, you've already ruined it. I'm talking to myself. So she says, well, you've come, you've, uh, I'll ask Miss Mitchell, and Mr. Uh, Mitchell, whether you can come over to my place. So she asked him, Mitchell said, yes. And she says, now listen, Miss Mitchell told her, I heard this tale after some of the film off. She says, now, then she messed up Mavis, or Mavis. But I know Mavis, I've been known her for years with my children. Don't mess her up. So she promised that she wouldn't. But that nobody never keeps a promise. And they're attentive. Okay. So I went to stay all night with her, and Miss Mitchell went back home. And now that's the time when it happened. And we got together. And then she tells me next time, she says, I can't stay here. Are you scared of No, what is the being scared of? You ain't got nothing to scared. Well, you're nervous. You're going with somebody and tell you to forget that old man. It's the same thing. One of the things that strikes me upon listening to this amazing clip is how much of the exchange between Mabel and this woman is about silences, is about kind of an unsaid transaction that results in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about looks. <laughs> I loved it, though. I love it. She's like, over she looked at me, I looked at her. It's she looked at me, story. I looked at her. It's story. And you get it. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, nonetheless, mm-hmm. you get it. Um, so it's like a love letter without words. Yeah. I actually think that in some ways, there's this like really incredible moment that's encoded in this interview or in this moment of this interview and its existence because what's special about Mabel or one of the many things that is special about Mabel in her life is that she marks this moment in transition where she has an older generation of people who understand themselves as lesbians to talk to and to lead her through coming out. And she also has a younger generation after her to preserve her story who are queer. We're not getting those, you know, moralizing reformers and those police telling us Mabel's story. Mabel is telling us her story preserved by other queer people. And that just wasn't possible before Mabel Hampton's time. Well, you know, and Hugh, that makes me think about how important the questions are made by the interviewer in an oral history. I mean, one of the things that we try to practice as oral historians is to kind of keep ourselves out of it as much as possible, to ask as minimally leading questions as possible. But nonetheless, we have to acknowledge that there are motivations behind all of the ways that we frame an interview. And I think, you know, if people do get the opportunity to listen to these interviews as a whole, I'm just as fascinated by the questions that prompt yeah. The, yeah. The, the the stories and the answers from Mabel. Yeah, the, and both interviews are done by Joan Nessel, and um, she does an amazing job of kind of um, drawing the, the the story out of Mabel without being overbearing, right? Mm-hmm. Like she creates enough space for Mabel to tell her story with just enough prompts, because even. 
at the point, and I think Hugh, you mentioned how Mabel was shy, and she says it. You know, she says like, "I'm, I, I was shy." And you can tell, like, that shyness is still in the telling of the story, mm-hmm. which gives it that much more of a kind of precious quality because it's almost like she's telling the story for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you almost get to experience her first time of experiencing what she's talking about. And I think the delicate way in which Joan Nestle kind of draws this out of her is really skillful in, mm-hmm. in that exchange. Yeah. And I mean, you can really feel Joan and I think the other interviewer is Deb Edel. And you can feel their hunger for this information. You know, you can feel their sort of subject position as lesbians in 1981 trying to find history that goes back before Stonewall. And that, I think, is also really sort of incredible. You can feel so much of their wanting and their hopefulness. And I I love the questions that they ask. And I love the relationship between Joan and Mabel, which goes way back beyond these oral histories. And, And Joan's actually written essays about it. You can find them online. You can find them in her books. It's really incredible. I very much encourage anyone interested in queer history to listen to Mabel's tapes and to read Joan Nessel. As always, we've got some excellent programs coming up here at Brooklyn Historical Society. For those of you who are not members yet, don't forget that your membership will get you discounted and often free entry to our programs. So sign up immediately. I'm looking into April at a program featuring our guest for this episode, Hugh Ryan, and the program is called The Queer Creative Impulse, Artistic Expression and Gender Identity. It's taking place Monday, April 1st. It will be a discussion on the intersection of LGBTQ identity and creativity featuring Hugh Ryan, who is not only our guest, also curator of the exhibition on the queer waterfront, as well as his new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. And he will be joined by CUNY professor Daniel Hurwitz, Cheryl Tippins, and June Thomas. Join them for this exciting conversation taking place Monday, April 1st at 6.30 p.m., $5 for non-members, free for members. Hugh, since you are our partner in crime in this episode, <laughs> what are you endorsing this month? Well, I've got to say you guys have a lot of great events. Uh, if you haven't looked at the website, but you're listening to this podcast, you totally should look at their event listing. But I'm most excited about the upcoming panel by George Chauncey on gay male culture in post-war New York, because his Gay New York is one of the touchstone books that I think not only informs my book, but honestly makes my book possible at all. And he's actually going to talk about the sequel to that book or the research that fuels the sequel, which is gay male life in New York City after and during World War II, you know, after 1940. And that is exciting and new information that most people haven't gotten to hear from him. And so this is going to be a really great panel. I am so geeked out, excited for that, and not just the talk, but for this book to come out. Gay New York is like a touchstone. Yeah. Everyone should read yeah. it. But it does leave you on kind of a cliffhanger, and we've been waiting 20 years for the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of fantastic books, Hugh, where can people find When Brooklyn Was Queer? Well, thankfully, we're all over the internet. So if you Google it, you will very quickly find links to buy it from a number of different stores. It's available in big chain stores. It's available in a lot of local stores. Including... And- Including BHS. Including BHS. (laughs) And I have to admit, touching my, you know, little baby queer heart the most, it's in a lot of libraries. And one thing I might ask your listeners is if you have a local library or a school library where you know the librarians, would you request the book? Because that's where I found my first queer books. And it would mean a lot for me to know that this is available to youth who maybe don't have the resources to get it or aren't out or afraid to read it. So that's my one little 
plug. That's awesome. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Special thanks to our guest, Hugh Ryan. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim D'Aquino, and our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Goliath.